0: Today, we are stepping into an Old Testament book. And some of you go like, oh, sweet, I didn't get a very good nap last night. So this is nap time for us now because it's Old Testament. Old Testament is boring, right? Old Testament is so old. It's for old people. I'll tell you, I love the Old Testament. Maybe it's because I'm getting older. That's, that's possible, okay? But the Old Testament is... And I know that there's, there's some schools of thought, and overall I, I disagree with a number of those schools of thought. But there's some schools of thought that, that say, well, the Old Testament is not relevant to us any longer. And I don't agree with that. I can't agree with that. Not only because of my position and what I've been taught in the further denomination. If I said I disagreed with it, they would probably pull my license. But it's beyond that, because I look at the Old Testament in the sweetness of it. And we look at it, what are you talking about? We look at the Old Testament, we see all kinds of destruction and God's wrath, and I know you do. But what you're seeing then and what you maybe are missing is this incredible picture of love that we have and grace all the way through the Old Testament. And we're going to see that as we go through this book called Malachi. Some refer to it as Malachi, but it's Malachi. What's going to be fun, I really mean this, is we look at the Old Testament and the value of it. Here's what the Old Testament does. It reveals to us a picture of who God is. So you can say the Old Testament, that's irrelevant. only thing that's relevant to us now is Christ and the Gospels and what Paul has to write. There's some schools of thought that believe that all we should look at is Paul's writing because he wrote to the Gentiles and we're a bunch of Gentiles. I can't agree with that either because ironically, consider this. Paul himself wrote in the New Testament to the Gentiles, to Timothy, who was technically a Jew, but uh, in his epistles, he wrote in one of his letters He's the one that said, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching. He's not referring to just the New Testament. He's referring to all Scripture, and the Scripture that he would have known would have been the Old Testament as well. And so he himself, this one that some would hold to, is like, that's the only teaching we need to follow, is saying, don't forget about the Scriptures, don't forget about the Old Testament. And so we're going to be looking at the Old Testament. The Old Testament does a beautiful picture of revealing God's holiness, We get to see the holiness of God. We get to see God's justice. We get to see God's sovereignty. We get to see God's love as revealed in the Old Testament. And that's what we're going to look at here beginning today. uh, Malachi is a relatively short book. I'm going to give you a little history on it. But look at this in Exodus 34, Old Testament book. There's a moment, as you recall the story, God had, and we'll talk about this in a little bit for some history. God had taken the Israelites out of Egypt And he had led them through the wilderness, and they come to this point, and Moses goes up onto the mountain, and we see this intimate connection with Moses and God, and God says to him, I will pass by, and I'll shield your your eyes so you won't be able to see my face, because if you saw my face, it would kill you. And he passes by, and as he passes by, this is the words that God says to Moses. He, He says, and he's passed by in front of Moses, proclaiming, and this is what God's words were, the Lord, the Lord the compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And notice that transition right there. Because as we look at these, these prophets, and Malachi is a minor prophet In the scriptures. That doesn't make him less important. That means we we're looking at a pretty small section of writing that we get from this author. But the point of it is, in the midst of it, we look at oftentimes these prophets proclaim such a message of wrath that we can't see the love in the midst of it. And this is what we find evidence here from God's own words to Moses. And he says, And forgiving the wicked, the wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Some of us struggle to reconcile how can a loving God let bad things happen? That's a question. If you haven't heard that question in our culture, you may not be listening to our culture because that is a common, common question. And I hope, I can't answer all these questions that you may have in regards to it, but my hope and prayer is that the Spirit will reveal to you as we look through this book of the Bible, God's sovereignty, God's justice in the midst of it. We don't have to all understand every why God does all that he does, but we must at least consider the reality that the sovereign God who has created all these things has the right to do that which he wishes to do with each and every one of us. And that does, it is a picture of justice because he's the creator and can choose to do. Well, you might cry out, well, that's not fair. It might be more fair than you realize. Okay. Anyway, he punishes the children and their children for the sin. Sin is a reality in our world. It's prevalent in our world. And so let's not write it off. So, well, I don't have any sin in my life. Why would God punish me? Okay, then you're blind. Then you miss it. I missed my spot there. The children and their children for the sin of the parents in the third and fourth generation. So let's, before we step into Malachi, I want us to understand a little bit of the, the history, where this comes from, and why we even have this book of Malachi. So, We have talked, as we went through Galatians, we talked about this man named Abraham. Abraham was considered uh, basically the father of many generations, the father of of Israel, in a sense, where God saw Abraham and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham didn't have any children. He was like 100 years old by the time he had kids, and God had said to him, I'm going to give you a child, and you're going to become a great nation. And this seemed to be this impossibility. Well, he had a son, they named him Isaac. Isaac had two sons. He had Jacob and Esau. I should point that out because that's going to come up in the message here this morning. Jacob and Esau. We know for some of you who have studied the Old Testament, Jacob also became the nation of Israel. He became Israel. There was one night where he had deceived his brother Esau a number of times. We won't get into all that today, but it happened. And in so doing, Jacob receives the inheritance, and Jacob receives the blessing, and Jacob receives the birthright. And so Jacob then, in a sense, becomes the oldest son, the one who is honored in that family. That was the cultural piece of it. And so Jacob then goes out, and he uh, gets a wife, actually gets two wives. But in this process, he has this wrestling with God. And the Bible says he wrestled with him all night. And then God basically touched his hip and dislocated the hip and basically made Jacob lame for the rest of his life. It's like there. It seems like that's cheating, but we'll take it to God, you know, we'll call it legal. All right. That the touching of the hip and dislocating the hip hadn't been deemed an illegal move in the wrestling realm yet. It is today. But in any case, we have at that moment then an angel appears to, to Jacob and he says to him, your name will no longer be Jacob. Your name will become Israel. And the word Israel means wrestles with God. And it's astounding to me that you have this name, wrestles with God, who's going to be God's chosen people for thousands of years, and yet this nation continues to wrestle with God, just like we do. Do we not? You can't tell me that you're you're fully, well, I'm fully submissive. Children, are you fully submissive to your parents, or do you kind of wrestle with them with your words and your thoughts and your actions? I know it, right? Same thing with me. There's this picture then of this constant wrestling that we have with Israel and God. And so then through Israel, what we find is it become a great nation. Uh, They lived in the promised land for a while. That was promised to Abraham. Well, the problem was there became a great famine. One of those 12 sons that Jacob had had got got sold into slavery. He's off into Egypt. And uh, other brothers come in looking for some food. They find Jacob, or Joshua, that's there. Sorry, I'm getting names mixed up. Joshua, who's there, and he says, hey, guess what? I got food for you. They all go to live in Egypt then. I said Joshua. Joseph. Great. Gravy. There's too many J names in the Bible. We're just going to throw it out there. So Joseph. Okay? That whole Joshua thing, just forget that, that comes in later. (coughs) No, it's funny. Man, this guy, he's our pastor? He's so stupid. (laughs) Can't he get anything straight? Anyway, I should have stuck to my notes. Honestly, I kid you not, I was sitting in my office like, there's no way I'm going to get through all this without making some mistakes. You know, I'm looking at all these notes. It's like, I have to stick to my notes this morning, and I just don't naturally do that. It's weird. Anyway, so we're, we're back to Joseph, who is in Egypt, and all the brothers come and live in Egypt. They're there for 400 years, but they end up falling into slavery in Egypt. Hardships, incredible hardships. And people can look at this like, how can God's people suffer so much? Where is this just God? Where is this loving God in the midst of all that struggle? And then what we find is, there's this man that raises up, Moses. Okay, And he comes out, long story short, and he ends up going off into the wilderness, and God sends him back through this burning bush and says, I want you to go and set my people free from from Egypt. There's these ten plagues. And we find that then Moses leads these people of Israel out into the wilderness. They're going into the promised land. I have a little bit of a picture to give you, a little idea. Some people hate maps. You've told me that. I'm sorry that you hate them. That's on you, Okay, because maps are really cool. But you have it here. Although, unless you can't read a map, then it doesn't do you any good. If you're out navigating, you're traveling, trying to get to one city to another, and you don't know how to read a map, put the map away, maybe burn it, because turn on your Siri GPS turn by turn. But what you have here... And notice that we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but you, you find that you've got the red, the Palestinian state, and then just above that you have the kingdom of Israel, and you have Judah. That is the nation of Israel at this time. But what happened was, is Moses, who's coming down here from, I'm going to try this pointer, it doesn't ever work for me very much. Am I anywhere close to it? No, no, no. There I am. Okay. So down into this area here is where, Egypt was. And so they as they're navigating, this is Moses' path, and they originally want to come up through, through here, and they send in the spies, and the spies say, no, we can't take it, they're just too big. There gets to be this moment, notice the kingdom of Edom, and I bring this up because we're going to see this in today's scripture as well. This kingdom of Edom are the descendants of Esau. And what's interesting with that is as these Israelites are coming back into this promised land, this is the promised land that they're trying to get into. That's what had been promised to Abraham. They run into Edom, and Edom says, thou shalt not pass, okay? pretty much like Gandalf on the bridge with the Balrog, okay? You cannot pass. And so they basically block the way and say, no, we're not letting you go through our land to get into it. That's interesting in a way, then this is Jacob's descendants and Esau's descendants, they're brothers in a way, they're brotherly nations, and yet there's this resistance going on, and we're going to see more of that. Not necessarily, it's not going to clear up all of your questions, but it's going to help you understand a little bit as to what's going on with it. So, then Moses takes the people, they wander around for 40 years, just a real brief story here, and then they end up crossing over into here at Jericho. And they get into the promised land. All right. Once you're in the promised land, Israel says, hey, we want a king. We want a king just like other nations. And God says, you're rejecting me as king. I've been your king through this whole time. And you're rejecting me and you want a king. So they give him king. And they get King Saul. Saul started out as a fine guy, but he was corrupted by power. Then we have after Saul, we have King David. David was seen as a man after God's own heart. Ironically, David was also a sinful man, an incredibly sinful man. And yet I'm convinced when we look at that phrase, a man after God's own heart, which is referred to as David, I think David was called that. This is my opinion. You won't see this in the scriptures, probably not even in any commentaries because I'm probably wrong. But in the same sense, I think there's at least some valid thought that I have towards it. And that is, I think David understood grace maybe better than a lot of other men in that time. And I think that's what created in him this man after God's own heart where he could understand, in the midst of my sin, I am loved by God. In the midst of my sin, I am accepted. He was forgiven, and I think he understood grace. And I think that grace is really one of the things that helped David to be a man after God's own heart. I, it's a profound piece. Anyway, after David then, we have this, one of his sons became Solomon. Solomon, um... Uh, He's the guy that built the temple. He was extremely wealthy. He considered to be extremely wise in all of his dealings. and he was very shrewd. He was harsh with the people in many cases, put them to work to build up this nation of Israel. And the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel at this time, which was still all together under King David and then somewhat under Solomon, is probably in the in the prime of its existence. It was just thriving. Even in, after David, which was, it started to kind of fall apart a little bit with David when his son actually goes to try to kill him and his son ends up dying. We see, again, see the compassion that David has to Absalom who's trying to kill him. When he dies, it's like, oh, such grief. But then we see Solomon and he, he builds things up. He builds the temple. It's just, it's magnificent. And then after Solomon dies, what we have is he has a son named Rehoboam. I don't know if you're tracking all this. This is kind of important to have understand a bit of the history because Rehoboam, then takes what Solomon did and creates a harsh environment for the nation. In other words, he basically says, you think my dad was harsh? I'm going to be that much harsher. And he lays such a heavy burden on them, and it kind of, it stirs up the people. Well, there became a bit of an uprising. And then what we have is there was a group of people who started to follow another leader by the name of Jeroboam. Jeroboam ended up creating kind of uniting the upper ten tribes, and Judah which was where uh, Solomon was was from. And then Benjamin became the southern kingdom. And so the kingdom is actually, the whole nation is divided into two. You have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern one is 10 tribes. They're following Jeroboam. The southern kingdom is two tribes. They're following Rehoboam. And what happened then is these both these nations end up turning from the Lord. One, the northern kingdom, ends up falling into idolatry first, and they end up getting conquered. You don't see it on this map quite well, but you have the Assyrian Empire. They come in and they conquer Israel because God said, hey, you're turning to idols. I'm allowing the Assyrians to come in and they're going to conquer you. And then what we find is a number of years later, Judah held on a little bit longer. That's the southern kingdom, the southern tribe. And when Judah holds on a little bit longer, I lost my thing, doesn't matter too much. There we go. Uh, Hold on a little bit longer. What we find is in 605, roughly, B.C., Babylon comes in, as was prophesied, and Babylon comes in and conquers them. That's Nebuchadnezzar. If, you're, if you've been with us for a while, whether following online or in person, you remember when we went through this, the series of Daniel. Wonderful. Guess what? Old Testament. And what was beautiful about that is in the midst of that Old Testament book, we saw pictures of Jesus Christ being pinpointed and kind of thrown out. He was that stone that was cut from the mountain that came down and crushed the nations. And what This is what changes, and this is why this part is important, why we have given all this history so far. When Babylon comes in and conquers the southern kingdom, conquers Judah, they're thrown into exile. They're taken into Babylon for 70 years. It was prophesied. After that, Persia came in. And one of those dreams that Nebuchadnezzar had, remember, there's this giant tower, this giant golden statue. His head was gold. That referred to Babylon. His chest was silver. That referred to Persia. That's the next nation that's coming in. Then the the hips were bronze. That's going to be Greece. And then finally, the, the legs were iron, and the feet were iron and clay, and that was the Roman Empire. And it was that stone cut from the mountain that comes down while the Roman Empire is here and crushes, and everything comes tumbling down, and that was Christ. Amazing. That's his Old Testament And that gets me excited when I consider this incredible picture that we have that God gave us in the Old Testament. What does that do? It points to me, wow, this whole salvation thing, this isn't an afterthought. This whole Jesus Christ coming and prophesied and promised, there's a love picture going on here way before we get to enjoy it in the New Testament. I just don't want to miss that piece of it. Okay, so here's why this is relevant to us and where we're going at today. After Babylon, here comes Persia. Uh, King Cyrus comes in and conquers Babylon. Great story with that too. We won't get into that. Uh, conquers, and then you have Daniel still in, the, in, in existence at that point. But now we're getting right at the end of the Old Testament time. And so that roughly, I think, I think Persia came in my memory might be wrong, I think around 530 B.C. And then what we have is at 430 B.C., Persia's still in control, and they start allowing the Israelites to go back to Israel. And they had done some of that before and to rebuild the city. You have a man in the scriptures named Nehemiah. He goes into Jerusalem, and he's actually working to build the wall back up around Jerusalem. At this time, okay, all of this exile, all this conquering, Greece has not come in to conquer yet. That was kind of prophesied that there was going to be another nation coming in. That was that whole big statue. Hasn't happened yet. But at this time, we have this prophet named Malachi at 430, roughly, it's believed, B.C. He is the last prophet that we have record of that God speaks through to the people before what is known as 400 years of silence. Okay, just imagine this. If you, your parent or your child, whatever the case, was going to go away for a long time, and they send you this letter. This is the last letter I'm going to receive to them for I don't know how long. What would you do with it? Yeah, yeah, that's good. I read it. I throw it, crumple it up, throw it in the garbage. Or is this the letter that you would kind of keep and hold on to as you consider when's the next time I'm going to see them? When's the next time I'm going to hear? And again, they didn't know all that. They didn't necessarily know that this is the last you're going to hear from it. However, we now do. And in this 400 years of silence, here's what I find absolutely astounding. The last message that God gives to the people is a picture of love. It's a reminder, I have loved you. Don't forget that I love you. It's a love letter coming from God to the people and then there's a 400 years of silence and the next thing we see is Christ the fulfillment of this love that we're going to see this isn't this is a powerful letter this is a powerful prophecy and so I just I want us to understand that as we kind of you know step into it all right three precepts before we get into further what this passage has to say it's like great Scott how many points do you have I got too many today I'll just tell you that much okay Three precepts of this love. This love of God that he's being talked about in Malachi. I want us to understand three things before we get into the passage. Three truths about God's love before we step into Malachi. First is, God's love is sovereign. Well, what does that mean? Basically, what I'm getting at with that is God's love is the standard. It is There is no love. Hey, if you love someone, guess what? There is a love that's the standard of all love that is higher than any love that you have experienced or have given. In other words, this is the standard of love. We see it evidenced here in 1 John 4. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. In other words, I want you to understand as we look at this love, God is the standard of all love. He is the creator of it. He is it. And so we can't compare a love or good love or true love without at least considering the reality that God's love is sovereign and he is the standard of it. There's a second precept. His love is unconditional This fits everything we've just talked about in Galatians. In other words, you can't do anything that's going to suddenly earn this love or diminish this love. This love is unconditional. His love is there no matter what you do. And we see this evidence somewhat in Deuteronomy 7. Again, Old Testament. I like this stuff. The Lord did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were more numerous than other people's, for you were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. In other words, what this is saying is the Israelites didn't do anything to deserve God's love. God did not choose them because, oh, you guys, well, you guys have stepped it up. You know, I was watching you guys, and and you guys were really good, and these other nations, they were just so-so. And so I'm going to go with you. Like He's not picking a softball team, okay? He's picked these people because they had done nothing to deserve this love, and yet he chooses to love them it's unconditional. They did nothing to deserve it. And no matter how much they do to undeserve it, which they do, his love is still a constant and it's unconditional. <laughs> There's a third one I want us to understand before we step into Malachi. Malachi, as some like to say. God's love is intimately personal. You may not believe it, but it is. And it's sweet and it's powerful. Look at these couple of passages. Deuteronomy 10. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors, and he loved them, and he chose you, their descendants. I love the picture of adoption. I've said that before, because that is this epitome of love. I choose to love you, and I'm going to love you no matter what. That child has nothing to do to earn or to validate that love. Instead, it's just chosen. And it's not, you know, I I got to thinking about this even as I was preparing. I see that evidenced in adoption, but it's not that different when you have a child of your own. It's like when when, our, when your child is born, it's like, okay, now i got to think. What are you going to do before I'm going to love you? So let's see. Well, you're going to have to stop messing your diaper. Okay? That's that's number one because that's disgusting. Okay? that It doesn't work that way. You know what I'm saying? And so even with a, a parent, that way you choose. It's like, I'm going to love you. And it's like, oh, I didn't choose that. I know, but you kind of did. I'm going to choose to love you no matter what. That's an amazing picture because you did choose to love when you chose to have that child, which in our culture, well, it's way different experience now today than it had been before. You follow? It would have been kind of a, a, a given before, and that's not a given any longer, but I choose to have you. I choose to love you. What an amazing picture, and that's some of the evidences we're going to look at here in a moment. Okay, one more passage. This is wonderful. This shows the intimate nature of God. Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, that's the idols, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim. Look at this intimate language. Ephraim was one of the sons of Jacob. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. <clears throat> taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. In other words, I loved them, and they were clueless. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. What an intimate picture. So the truths of this love of God, it's sovereign, it's unconditional, and it's an intimately personal, it's affectionate. Okay, here we go. Malachi chapter one. Uh, one thing just to note, and I don't know why, I'm I'm not an interpreter of of scripture when it comes to translator. Okay. And I don't know why the NIV does this. In fact, very few translations from what I've read through commentaries actually get this right. I don't know what your Bible says. This one says a prophecy. Some may say a message. Some may say an oracle. I think all three of those sell this short from what I've done in my studying. The word here, it d- that does fit to an extent, but the word actually would have referred to a weight Okay, it, there's a heaviness to it. And so the, the better translation would likely be a burden, but people don't like to put in this burden because, well, Malachi is giving a burden, a burden of love. And the reality of it is, yeah, I think he is. There's a weight to the word of God. There is a weight to these scriptures. There is a These scriptures aren't just like, oh, here, guess what? I have a message for you. In other words, what this is saying, what it should be saying is, hey, listen up there's some strong-weighted words coming that are going to follow this. That's the message that's being given in the original text. So a burden, the word of the Lord of Israel through Malachi. Malachi basically means messenger. Some wonder, is that really his name? The evidence points that it is his name, but that's just for those who really like to get in deep about things that really don't matter much. Malachi 1, verse 2. Here we have it. Oh, If you as a parent haven't experienced this scenario, uh, you might be in this far minority. Because this is what it basically says. God says to the Israelites, I have loved you. And their response, how have you loved us? In other words, what have you done for me lately? It's a great big fat, not fair. You're mistreating us. You're punishing us. We don't deserve to be punished. Why do I have to load the dishwasher? Why do I always have to be the one to take out the garbage? Why do I always have to be the one to let the dog out to do his duty? Okay? It's like, I've loved you. Yeah, well, if you loved me, then you would buy me a new car. I have loved you. Well, if you loved me, you would pay for my college. You know? That's the message that's really happening here, and this is relevant to us today because we all experience stuff like this. Even if you don't have kids, you've been there. You can remember back when you were a child, and maybe it's even along the lines of, okay, uh, big brother in the sense of government, us, whatever the case is. Like, oh, God, how have you loved me? Because I'm the one suffering. I have, I have no money. How have you loved me? Everything's harsh for me. How have, how have you loved me? Nothing's going right for me. How can you say you love me when I see so much hurt and whatever, and I'm experiencing so much hurt? Where's the love? I'm not seeing it. And that's is exactly what God's dealing with with the people. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? And we've got three evidences that we're going to see in these short five verses, three evidences that God does love them, and it carries over and proof to us as well. Number one, it says, was not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. Here's the bottom line. What God's first evidence to the people of Israel, I chose you. I picked you. I've loved you just simply because I want you. And we look at that and we can get into it and it's going to be very difficult. We're probably not going to have time because we're looking at the time already to get into even all the passages that I have here. Maybe we'll recap next time. We We can... condense and preface that a little bit but i want you to grasp this reality we see it evidence in the new testament as well you have been chosen the bible says that he doesn't want anyone to perish in other words i've chosen you i love you i pick you if if we were on a softball team i would pick you first and i pick you first and I'd pick you first. Do you follow that mindset? I know it's confusing to us. Well, we can't all be first. In God's eyes, with this this kind of love that he has, when he sets that standard of sovereignty and unconditional love, yes, he can. And he chooses you. You may be sitting here don't, I don't even know that God has any love. I want you to hear the message. God loves you. He loves you more than he loves anyone else in this room. And it's true for all of us, not because of what you've done, not because you're all that and a bag of chips. That's irrelevant. He loves you because he wants to love you and he has chosen you. It's simple as that. The answer that he's given to the Israelites, he's saying, how have you loved us? He said, I picked you. Can't you open your eyes and see that I have picked you? And we're going to have some tough things don't have time to get into all of it. I'll try to give a little bit of a snapshot, but we'll see how it goes. He says in verse 3, this gets us uncomfortable, let's be honest. But Esau I have hated. We get hung up on that, especially in our English translation of it. I don't think we need to get hung up on that. We see other evidences in the scripture of this phrasing, and the really the understanding, the meaning is not that, oh, I hate Esau. I can't stand Esau. That's not the message of what uh, God is getting at here. The message that God is getting at is, I want you to see the reality that I've picked you. I've picked you for a purpose, and uh, a picture of, of a love that I have for you because I have you to share this love with the rest of the nations. We'll get into that maybe a little bit here in a little bit. But he says, Esau, I've hated. It's similar when we see it in Matthew 10. This doesn't use it. Some of your translations might, where we see Jesus actually tell the people, "Say, unless you hate your father and mother, you can't follow me. It's that same idea. Is he asking, actually asking you to hate them? No, he's asking you to choose God over your parents. That's what he's asking. And that's the same message that we're having here in Malachi, where he says, Jacob, I have loved you. Esau, I have hated. Okay, I know you struggle with that word hate, but this is the different message here. But this is what it says in Matthew 10, 37. Says, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me, and some will say, unless you love me and hate your parents, kind of that same idea, is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's not asking you to not love your parents and not love your sons or daughters. He is asking you to make a choice of love for him first and foremost. Okay, back to Malachi, verse three. And so then what we have is not only the evidence that God has chosen you, but he is just. We struggle with God's justice. That's what Israel's struggling with, God's justice. And we all struggle with God's justice because we think we have a better idea of what a just action is from God than he does. We don't have time to go through all I have because I've got quite a bit on this part, but I'm trying try to give a bit of a, a synopsis picture. He says, and Esau I have hated, and I have turned his country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. I'm not gonna say why God did all that he did here. We touched on it briefly where even in this realm of Edom, which was Esau's descendants, Okay, they refused Israel passage. In other words, they opposed the people that God the the plan that God had for them, and they were resistant to what God has. And so God's going to come down on them, not just in a picture of wrath, but also a picture of drawing into love. We'll see that evidence as we continue to move through. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild. In other words, we will do this on our own. We don't need God to do this for us. We will do it. We don't need God's blessing. We are strong enough. We are good enough. And what God says to that, but this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may rebuild, but I'll demolish it again. Is it because I hate them? Or is it because I love them I want them also to see my hand at work? And I'm convinced that it's the latter. I'm convinced of it. And I know it's a struggle for us sometimes to get our minds around that, but I'm so convinced of it. They will be called the wicked land and people under, always under the wrath of the Lord. Is that God's choice? It, I'm always going to make sure they're under the God's wrath? Or is it because of their choice to, hey, is God saying, I'm going to crush you, crush you, crush you? If you're going to crush them, they would just be gone and dead, right? But that's not what he does. He continues to break it down. Why? In hopes that they would turn to the Lord. Edom, Esau, their history, they would have known what God wanted. They were raised in the same home as Jacob was. This is not a mystery. They weren't just left in the dark. So you have to understand a little bit of that picture, that context. Okay, I got too much here. I'm not sure what to cut and what to leave in. This is a long passage, Romans 9. Here's what I want to challenge you guys to do. When you go home today, read through Romans chapter 9. I think I got verses 10 through roughly 25 here. We don't have time to get through all of it, but I want you to, to grasp what Paul, New Testament, he's saying, he's actually going to be quoting the passage that we're looking at today, and he quotes some other magnificent ones that I didn't even include because he was uh, including it. But notice verse 12, he says, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, this is Israel, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. That's the quote. Um, then what shall we say? Is God unjust? And he says, No. This is not about God's justice. I mean, you can't call God unjust for this. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy on. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. If you don't receive God's mercy in this earth and you're suffering, does that mean you're not loved? It might feel like that's the truth, but that's not the truth. You may ask yourselves, why am I going through such hardship? I'm telling you, God loves you, he's chosen you, and he has you for a specific purpose. Here's what best I can do. This us maybe summarize it up. <laughs> so the other day, actually it was just yesterday, I was putting my, my brother's boat into the water. We, he, it had some engine work that needed work on it, so I, I did that. Not by myself, I had Mike Walters helping me. And I'll just, I'll put it this way, Mike really knows what he's doing, and it reminded me, as he came into my garage to work on this engine, um, you know the Swedish chef, you know, where he, he tears into stuff and things are flying. That was that was Mike at my engine. Because I approached my motor. You know, I was taking some pictures. I wanted to make sure I had it all right. And I, I had taken a few things off. And as soon as Mike comes in, he asked, how's it going? I said, well, slow, but that's okay. I'm taking pictures, make sure I know everything, where everything goes. Mike comes in, and he's just, I kid you not, things are flying all over the place, nuts and bolts. It threw me off. <laughs> it's like... Wait a minute, Mike. But to his credit, he put it all back together, and it runs great. Okay. But the point of it is <clears throat> I I have one of these that I have put in, in the boat, my brother's boat, because he doesn't have one of these in the boat. He needs one of these in the boat because he's got a plug that screws into the back of the boat, and he has lost the crank to the winch, and so you need to have some form of a wrench to, you know, so I can find all these different tools or whatever the case is and keep them all in the boat. But there's this tool that does both of them. And ironically, as I was putting the the boat into the water, well, the winch, because he should have really upgraded the winch, it slipped and got locked on the safety chain, if you know what the safety chain is, and it's wedged in there now between the the strap and the safety chain, and this is the only tool I've got. So I'm under the boat, I'm hammering with this underneath the boat, trying to get it to clear. The point of it is, there's tools. There's purposes for the the tools. You know, if I went in, I'm going to build a house with this hammer. Well, what happens when I bend a nail? Oh, I'm not going to get that out unless I have really super strong teeth. And so then there's this tool. You you found the the point of it is what we see even here in the midst of it. When it says God says, I'm going to have mercy on whom I'm going to have mercy on. He's not saying, I'm going to show you favor to them. I'm going to crush you. He's basically saying, I have something in mind for you and it might be painful. I have something in mind for you, and it's going to come through blessing, and you're going to share that blessing with others. That doesn't diminish the love that he has for you, but he loves you enough to work through you, and sometimes it's a squeezing, sometimes it's a releasing. I don't know why he does what he does, but I'm convinced that everything in your life, he's put you where you are because he wants you to understand the love that he has, that you can share that to others, and sometimes it could be difficult. Sometimes it can be miserable, and yet through that, I'm convinced that he wants to do something really great because he loves you. He doesn't want the worst for you. He wants the best for you. And as he wants the best for you, he wants to take and use you and mold you and squeeze you. And sometimes it feels like he's not just, but he is just. Okay, enough on that. We're going to go through the rest of these here. I know, look at all this. We just don't have time for that. So read that on your own later. Final one. So the evidence is three evidences that we see this morning through the scripture through Malachi. One is you've you cho- you been chosen. You are loved because God chooses to love you. Number one, number two is the evidence is just. God is just. We struggle to understand it. We struggle to see it, but that doesn't diminish it. He is just and we can look at his justice and the right decisions that he makes and say, okay, I don't fully get it, but you're right. I see your justice in the midst of it. And so that is the evidence. He says that to the Israelites as well. I'm just, I'm going to make the right decisions. I'm going to deal with Edom as I need to. I'm going to deal with Israel as I need to. I am just, I am right. Third one, and this is wonderful, it's universal. It goes beyond the borders. And so it says, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. In other words, the evidence is this. God loves you. He's going to deal with you justly and rightly. He's not going to tolerate sin in your life. He wants to crush that sin that you're holding on to. That's uncomfortable. But he's he loves you enough and is just enough to deal with that. And then finally, this love is designed to go beyond just you. It goes beyond your borders. It doesn't stop with you. He loves you more than anyone else in this room, and he loves the person next to you more than anyone else in this room. Well, that doesn't mathematically make sense. It doesn't have to. God's love is the standard. And so now it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop in this room. It's universal in the sense it goes beyond the borders. And we see that was promised to Abraham as he went out. Finally, I want us to see and kind of end and wrap up with this. 1 John chapter 4. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. I know this is a tough topic for some of us because some of us, you've grown up in a, in a house without love. Maybe we've got a poor picture of love, a poor picture of parent, poor picture of justice. My hope is that the Holy Spirit will work in you and reveal to you what this love really is, this powerful love of God, and that we can come to this point and so that we know and we can rely on the love that God has for us. It's real. You can't make it go away. No matter what you do, he still loves you. He's going to act justly with you, He wants you to take that love and share that with others as well. That's that going beyond your borders. But love is crazy when it comes to the love that God has for us.